welcome back or welcome to On Coaching. I'm Steve Magnus and joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, how's everything going? Fantastic, because it's that time, Steve. It's time to give the people what they really, 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 really want. All right. And before we jump into today's topic, you know what's coming. It is our push for the Scholar Program, our one-stop shop for your coaching needs. Includes everything you could ever ask for. Maybe you're watching the Olympics and you're saying, man, these guys and gals run really fast. I wonder how they train. Well, guess what? We've got, I think, literally over 100 world-class athletes' actual training programs from all the way back in the day, uh, some of the great athletes of history, all the way up to many of the athletes you're seeing race right now, especially uh, Canova's athletes you get to go through in our Canova course. Gosh, I think he's given us like 60 to 70 um, full training logs of his athletes, including world record holders, medalists, all that good stuff. So if you're saying, hey, what are these people doing to run this fast? You know, we got you covered. See what they do on a day-to-day basis. So with that, let's jump into today's topic, which is the science of warm-ups and cool-downs. I'm excited for this one because I think this is one of those areas where often what happens is we just kind of do what we did as an athlete or do what's traditionally thought of or done without taking the time to think of what is the purpose of a warm-up, what is the purpose of the cool-down, and we're going to try and dive into a little bit of the science, a little bit of what John and I do, and um, you know, discuss the warm-up and cool-down. Yeah, it's so easy um, for the warm-up and cool-down just to be kind of an afterthought in training versus it is, you know, in a lot of ways, a key ingredient with just as much import as your workout or your main um, activity of the day. And it deserves the merit to be discussed in depth so that you can make it something that actually enhances the value of your training session and also helps complement to springboard the effects of it. Exactly. Exactly. It's really, it's, it's really to set you up. And then the other thing I think is important that is often uh, missed as well is the warm up is all actually a, it's a training and adaptation time. Same with the cool it is, down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get different adaptations and different stimulus and actually shift your training stimulus a little bit based on what you're doing in the warm up and and in the cool down. So it's not just this time to prep; it's also training time, and I think that's often neglected. Uh, when we think of warming up, especially for workouts or cooling down from workouts. Yeah, so let's jump right in, Steve. Let's talk about, first and foremost, warming up. All right. So I, I, I like to keep it simple and think of the warm up as what are we trying to accomplish, which is we're trying to get the body revved up. Okay. So revved up and prepared for whatever it is that we're about to accomplish, okay? Or whatever it is we're trying to do, whatever workout or race. Um, What happens physiologically? Well, it's pretty straightforward. We get our core temperature, body temperature, muscle temperature up a little bit. We get our metabolism going a little bit. We raise our baseline VO2 up. We're almost essentially priming, priming the system. So if I didn't do a warm up and I just, you know, went out the door and started hammering my run or whatever, running as hard as I can, your your body's uh, energetic system isn't ready, isn't ramped up and ready to go. Right. So if I ran straight out the door, my body would be like, oh, my gosh, like we're running really fast. Like we've got to meet these demands really quickly. So you know, cover the gap with all the ATP and creatine phosphate we can, and hopefully we can get our our system revved up. And then it's like, oh, we've got to cover that gap with some anaerobic glycolysis before the aerobic system gets up. 
if you time it right, you know, what happens, you go for a run, you do some hard strides, you do some drills, your body temperature is ele elevated, which means your metabolism is primed to use those energetic sources. Your VO2 stays elevated to a degree. And what happens is when you then start the race, you don't, you're not going from zero to 100, but your system's already like, oh, you know what? We're already, we're already primed. Our VO2 is already elevated a little bit. And what that does is that allows you to kind of maximize where you are aerobically going into that race so that, yes, the first couple seconds, you're still dipping into that ATP, you know, uh, creatine phosphate system and then anaerobic glycolysis, but you don't have to dip in to cover that gap as much because your aerobic system's already uh, revved. And then the other thing, you know, from a physiological science side is talked about VO2, we talked about metabolism, but you're also, you know, especially with some of the drills and strides and um, sometimes excels that you do, you're priming your, your motor system, right? You're priming uh, motor unit activation and getting that ready as well so that, you know, when it comes time to flip the switch and start racing, your body is prepared to activate those pathways and then recruit the muscle, uh, muscle fibers and motor units that are most efficient for doing the work in that space. Yeah, that's a good lens, I think, to uh, initially think about it. And let's touch more on that kind of glycolysis. Um, nine times out of 10, most runners, even in their warm-up, run too hard, too fast, too soon. And what happens, as Steve alluded to, is remember glycogen is a limited resource in the muscle tissue and in select organs. And so unless you are replenishing that, you know, with a sip per step, so to speak, you're burning this glycogen. So if you start off too fast and your body has to cover that gap, you have then essentially burned or, you know, uh, limited the scope of that highly efficient fuel source that you're probably going to use for, um, in big uh, proportion for your race or workout before you even start to line to start the race or start the first rep. So this is why like you really want to take the warmups super slow and super easy in the beginning. So that gap can be covered, as Steve said, by more kind of that lactate fatty acid system that is going to allow, you know, um, activity to happen, but not burn that precious glycogen. And that's, Often, you know, when runners start to feel like woozy or bonking, you know, a third into the workout, halfway into the race, you know, nine times out of 10, I check and see like how fast, how intense relative to their ability level was their warm up running. And, you know, Daniels, he even goes so far and early Daniels, like I'm talking 1970 with Castile, um, to say every single run whether it's a recovery run, a long run, a workout, a shakeout, whatever it is, every single one should start off with an easy five to 10 minutes of light jogging. And this makes perfect physiological sense. But how many times do you start off? And we're, we're not talking light jogging. We're talking Kenyan poly poly. We're talking nine minute, 10 minute, you know, is, are you walking or are you jogging? But this is why the East Africans have mastered this discipline is to start that first 10 minutes off um, very, very slowly. Even, you know, Sarah Hall, I remember when you were working with her, she'd go to Ethiopia. And, you know, I recently read something, Becky Wade, same deal, experiences phenomena where the, the, the run was always preceded by this long walk that became a stumble that became a light jog that became nothing more than this like really shake shake out running for about you know from a recovery standpoint if you're doing a recovery run an hour at most or even warming up for the workout very slow and americans are shocked by this but again the discipline there is they're trying to conserve that glycogen early on as they're trying to get those other physiological motor parameters revved up, so to speak, um, with the least abrasion, the least expenditure possible. And I think that's the mindset you have to have uh, when you're warming up for any type of activity is the easier, the better 
in the initial stages. And for me, it's kind of like a crescendo. It starts off super easy, it's not difficult at all. Your grandmother could do this. Do things get a little bit more technical, a little bit more swifter, a little bit more crisper, a little bit more faster, a little bit more intense so that you're waking the body up and the mind and the whole system um, to be able to perform these and execute these highly coordinated and difficult tasks that we call running fast. You know, it's also why if you look at really good sprinters, for instance, uh, you know, what um, Leroy Burrell and Carl Lewis have their sprinters do at, at Houston is their first part of the warm-up is what? They walk a lap. Literally walk a lap. And it's this, it's, it's this, okay, how do we get their, you know, before races, how do we get their body to go this crescendo and sprinters warm up for even longer than distance runners? You know, they, they start hour, half hour and a half hour, 45 out, you know, before the race, but it is, it's this nice crescendo where you're trying to build, 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 um, and get your body progressively more prepared both muscularly and physiologically. And it also depends on, of course, the race as well. That glycogen utilization especially comes into play in the marathon, which is why for marathoners, you often see the jog is very slow and very short, right? Um, because they're saying, okay, I'm just going to get my body just a little bit prepared uh, so it's ready to go. But I'm also going to have this first you know, little bit of the marathon to get, work into this as well. I think the other part of it that is interesting on the physiology is you build, 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 build. And then, you know, as you're building, you need to have this like optimal space, especially before a race of holding on to some of that physiological priming, but giving yourself just enough rest so that you dissipate any, any sort of fatigue from, you know, the hard strides or excels or whatever you, you try to do at the end. And, um, that timing bit is, is, is really interesting and important. And there's actually been a couple interesting studies looking at the 800 in particular, where they've had athletes do a, a hard 200, for example, at race pace. Uh, I don't remember the exact timing, but it's maybe, you know, 10 minutes out from the race. And why do that? Well, most people think like, oh, a 200, that's really far for 800. That's going to create some fatigue. But what they found, again, primes the system, gets them ready. And when they have enough recovery, it allows them to feel good and be in a better position uh, come race time. Uh, one of the quick, easy ways to kind of cheat cheat on, on how your warm up is, is to ask, ask yourself when you're doing intervals, when you feel the best. So if you're you're setting up and you're doing 400 meter intervals or 400 meter repeats, do you feel great on number one, or does it take you you know one or two reps to get into it and feel the groove? If it takes you a couple reps to get into it, your warm up uh, didn't build to the point that it probably needed to uh, to get you primed and ready to go. Yeah, that post-potentiation activation phenomena is really important from a, a neurological standpoint. Um, you know, uh, coordinating the limbs, also getting the, the tendons uh, and the avascular tissue ready for the demands that's coming up. Um, and, you know, they this is why strides are recommended before a race and so, and so forth and so have you. I found, you know, come what the science shows, again, when we think about this crescendo, is I actually have my runners right before they start a workout or even a race go through what we call activation. And it's a very uh, series of disciplined uh, running movements or uh, reps that are designed to elicit just that, the ideal, you know, um, a heightened and primed physiological and mental, emotional, as well as uh, neurological state. And what activation looks like typically is it's slow to fast, so it's going to be something very simple, like for even 10K, 5K runners, it's going to be two times 200 at, or excuse me, it's going to start off with 600 to 800 meters tempo. So just kind of a steady state, 15K race pace. 
long rest, so about three minutes to four minutes, easy walking, recovery, sip, you know, change things, bathroom break, what have you. And then it's two times 200. First 200 is at 5K pace. Get a lot of recovery afterwards, you know, full recovery, about two to three minutes. Another 200 at 3K pace, so a little faster, full recovery. And then some uh, hundreds at about, you know, one or two hundreds at 1500 meter pace. And then one or two really, really fast sprints, 40 meters or five seconds, nothing crazy. Walk back, full recovery. So the goal here is to kind of like turn on essentially every system as well as prime the body physically to go through joint ranges of motion in the most skill specific way possible via running, by running slowly, uh, by progressively running a little faster and faster and faster. Ideally, this should be completed about no, you know, 10 minutes out before um, the start of the primary activity, whether it's a race or a workout. And that window is about a eight to 10 minute window that Steve was talking about. Beyond 10 minutes, you start, the body starts to um, come down from that high, come down from that priming, heart rate goes down, all these different things go down. Shorter than that, you haven't let that full recovery um, happen. So there's potential that you, you're signaling to your body stress and um, there's excessive fatigue metabolites rolling around the system. And that's why you want to shoot for about that eight to 10 minute window. Um, you know, it might sound excessive and you're like, oh, you're going to burn all your energy or glycogen or this or that. But if you do with enough discipline in that order of operation, slow to fast, long to short reps, and you give enough recovery, and the idea is big breaks in between. It's not part of the workout or the race. It's setting you up for the, the workout of the race. Then you're able to hopefully start rep one or step one of the race in a better state and get elicit more response from that um, training activity or competitive activity then kind of going through that first rep or that first mile and just being like, you know, I, I didn't feel like I woke up yet, you know, and, I, and that's a very common phenomena when a runner reports that that first rep, they didn't feel like they woke up or even that first mile. It just means they weren't um, primed uh, adequately and warmed up adequately. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all, all really good points there. I think that, it's really this this kind of balancing point, you know. It's like um, you're trying to prime and get them in the in the right spot without creating fatigue, and then or without or with giving yourself enough time to get through any of that fatigue. So it's really that 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 balancing point. And I think it's important to mention that it differs with each individual and with with what they're bringing to the table. You know, one of the things that I often look at or I've seen is when you look at what I'd call our, our kind of more fast twitch distance runners versus our slow twitches, those fast twitch athletes like need a little bit shorter, easy running, right? And to keep it really easy, because if you go too hard or too long, you start creating some of this fatigue and, and such, which you mentioned. Um, the slow twitch athletes often need a little bit longer. And then the fast twitch athletes like really need some sort of longer or sorry, some sort of short um, extended pretty hard effort, like a 150 or a 200 at like mile to 800 pace, right? To really kind of prime them and get ready. And the slow twitch athletes often need to prime that aerobic side um, with, you know, Maybe uh, a couple two by one minute, two by two minute at like this threshold kind of, you know, pace or effort where they really kind of get that aerobic system primed. And then they do some really short excels or strides for the nervous system, but they don't need as like a 200 at 800 pace or what have you. So it's really individualizing on on what you're kind of trying to get and and what you know the athlete kind of brings to the table yeah and so remembering that you know the slow twitch or aerobic based athlete has a higher inclination probably via training effect and disposition towards utilizing 
fat as a fueling substrate and they don't have as much carbohydrate or glycogen stored in their body, right? Because, uh, or are able to access it with the import because they're just not used to it. Also their joint ranges of motion, right? Is not quite as wide because they run a lot more and they run a lot relatively to the fast twitch athlete, a lot slower. The inverse is true too. The um, fast twitch athlete probably has a preference for more glycogen burning um, activity because it's higher intensity and higher power in nature and higher joint rate or more higher magnitude of joint ranges of motion in the hip, right? And the knee and what have you, because they're just taking bigger strides, longer strides, more powerful strides to produce that. So when we think about that, this makes total sense. Again, we don't want to burn. We want to get through the warm-up burning as little glycogen as possible. That is the, to me, that's the underpinning physiological concept. So also athletes are sipping, you know, some kind of carbohydrate replacement drink as they're doing this. But whether it's for the high glycogen burning athlete, the fast twitch one, or the slower, steadier burning one, the longer, slow twitch athlete, again, the goal is to figure out how to get it so that we essentially get to the start of the race or the start of the workout with the, as Kano would say, the gas tank full. And this is where, again, too hard a warm up or even too long a warm up. Like if your warm up is six miles, of running because you're trying to quote unquote get those miles in before you start your workout or your race, by that point you've exhausted a little too much glycogen that is not going to be able to be utilized for the higher intensity portion of your uh, training activity that day. So how long should you run on a warm-up? The science is pretty darn clear. It's about 15 minutes plus or minus here or there for your you know longer athletes and it's about eight to 10 minutes for your fast twitch. That should be what constitutes that really slow, 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 um, easy jogging, which is the best vehicle to, you know, get you kind of warmed up metabolically, core temperature wise, et cetera. And then what you should you do afterwards, right? Well, once you're warmed up, the in-between is, you know, people call it flexibility or I call it mobility drills, right? So that's really what those drills should be uh, encompass is we used to static stretch, right? And we no longer static stretch because we know those micro tears in the muscle tissue aren't going to be advantageous when you're asking and recruiting them to be um, in high demand or high intensity activity. So now we do dynamic drills or dynamic stress. And let's dig in a little bit to the whole dynamic stretching and dynamic drill set sequence that's very in vogue and very popular and why some make a lot of sense and some are just kind of what I like to call preparation theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the drills drills are interesting. Um, I think a, a couple things. First, we look at what are we trying to do with the drills. Um, there's some range of motion, right? Some getting that fluidity and then improving neuromuscular function. We can look at increasing our reactivity and the muscle tendon unit uh, have increased tension so it acts more spring-like. And I think we really need, when we're looking at the drills we select, we need to really be intentional on, on what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to do, right? Are you getting ready for a steeple? So you need some sort of to prime the, and to increase the range of motion from what the, the warm-up does. Uh, the warm-up jog and strides do, then you need to include some stuff that, again, is more mobility-based. Um, I look at it as, as pretty simple. As I move from simple, what I'd call dynamic uh, stretching-type drills where we're just kind of getting some range of motion, and then I move towards what I'd call coordination-type drills, where I'm looking at, okay, starting to prime the body to move, right? And to increase some of that or to get some of that reactivity, right? Off the ground where we're getting nice and quick. And then for especially middle distance runners, I like to prime them with some sort of nice reactive work. My 800 runners, when I was working in college, uh, loved, absolutely loved to do jump rope. And they'd bring their jump rope 
to, you know, to the track so that they could do it for warm up before workouts, before races. And, you know, I've told this story many times, but one time I had an 800 runner who was running at the armory who uh, went out to go on his warm up jog. His knee kind of bothered him, not so much that, you know, he couldn't run, but it bothered him where he just went back inside and didn't do a warm up jog. I wasn't there when he did when he pulled this off. I mean, I was in the stands watching other people race. He was doing his warm up on his own. But anyways, he didn't go for a warm up jog. He didn't do any other drills. He literally sat there and jump roped and then went out and ran, I think, 151 for the 800 indoors off of jumping rope and then doing a couple strides. And, you know, ever since that time, I think it it made it in vogue for our athletes. But what it was really doing is, again, you're priming this kind of neuromuscular movement and then increasing that tension, that spring-like feel. So if you ever watch uh, distance runners, milers do it a lot, sprinters do it a lot, but you see them maybe after after a couple strides or right before the race, they do like a nice big pop-up. What are they trying to do? It's intentionally priming the system, right? Some nice power and then some nice reactivity. So you feel that, that spring-like uh, ability. That's what you're trying to do. Now, how much and to what degree Again, depends on the athlete, but to me, it also depends on how, what I call flat they are. If they're feeling good and springy and looking great on their, let's say, strides and excels and they're coming off the ground, you don't need to do as much of this kind of reactive stuff. If you're looking at them and they look really flat and their muscles feel kind of like, ugh, dead, unresponsive, not, not, you know, not reacting then I might introduce more of this stuff into their warm-up where we do some plyos and some light skips and some jump rope and stuff like that where we're trying to prime that nice react re- reactivity off the ground and make their legs feel nice, uh, bouncy, and responsive. I love it. Yeah, one of my favorite drills is a double hop into... Uh, you know, 20 to 30 meter, just kind of like 1500 meter stride. So, I mean, if you watch, say, like Tori Franklin, one thing that makes Tori Franklin so good in the women's triple jump is how she actually starts her run down the runway. So she double hops right into a run. And what she's doing is she's priming that elastic system, that elastic capacity of her tissues and that tension in the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments and the joints by getting essentially a boost, right? So same deal here, it creates a little bit of a boost. And all you have to do is just jump up. You start it, it's very simple. You jump up as high as you can in place. And as soon as your feet touch the ground, you just react off the ground. So jump back up. And then when you come down from that second float on that jump, you immediately go right into running, right into that stride, right? So you're just essentially getting the wheel spinning by getting this reaction, this plyometric and remember, plyo happens when you're coming down with a load. So if you just did one jump and landed, that's not a plyometric. So you want to, you need to have that reactivity of coming down from load and then doing something afterwards, which is, again, springing again or spring right into a run. Um, I do that very frequently with a lot of middle distance runners as well as distance runners. Power, that's an activity I feel like. You really need to practice with the distance runners because they're a little less coordinated on um, in that regard. But it's very advantageous to even help them feel like they neurologically uh, and muscularly woke up. Like, oh, I feel I have, you know, I've, I, I'm out of this fog or this haze. Because sometimes, too, in the warm up, and this is an important point to touch on is too much thinking goes on, right? Especially before a big race or a big workout or something that has a lot of import to that athlete. And they can start to unravel adrenally themselves and waste their nervous energy through worry, through, um, you know, concern, through insecurity, through lack of confidence. All very real and very important because we are preparing the body to do something that is you know, they know is difficult. That is a little bit of a stretch beyond their current capacity, whether it's a workout or a race. So one reason to have kind of this nice physiological progression of activity and routine 
is to also give them a sense of stability and control and rehearsal and confidence about, well, if I got through this part, you know, the easy part, easy going in one piece, I have all these data points from prior workouts, prior races that went well enough to give me confidence. And then two, it just keeps you task focused where you're not worrying about, oh, who's in the race? What's the pace? What's the weather? What's the workout? This or that. By just centering yourself and just being task focused and staying on that on task versus off task mentality that we talk about. Mike Smith uses to great effect with NAU uh, athletes. It gives them that semblance of confidence. So they just focus in on the moment rather than worrying about this or that. And that's why it's really important, I think, to establish the or, or tinker around with your warm up kind of day one early on in the season, whether it's cross country track or even preparing so that you have this anchor, this emotional anchor, uh, this psychological anchor for the athlete for when they go into the harder phases of training or the harder um, phases and periods of competing that they have something that is just automatic and that allows them as a vehicle to get to the starting line or get to the first rep in that workout, you know, in the best physiological state, yes, but also the best psychological state. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because when I look at uh, what are the key characteristics psychologically to kind of prime, put yourself into before a race, I think in the warm up comes in, in, in all of these is I think it's uh, a, you're putting yourself so that you see the race as a challenge instead of a threat. So you see it as something that, you know, you want to take on, that you're capable of taking on. B, you put your mind at the right around the right, uh, you know, sp space of or level of arousal. So not way too high and amped up, not too low and dull. Like we all have our individual space, but the warm up helps get us in the right space and arousal. And then see the last kind of psychological thing is just what you talked about, which is routine minimizes decisions and thinking, right? If you're moving from one thing to the next, like you said, and you know where this space goes and what the next step is, you're in the moment focusing on what you're supposed to be doing instead of letting you know yourself worry or your mind drift off to the future and worrying about what's going to happen in the race and whether you can handle it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So especially when you're looking at, you know, athletes who might have some sort of performance anxiety, a clear warm up where they're comfortable with, comfortable with it, know what they're supposed to do and know what they're trying to do is incredibly important. And, you know, one, one of the other things that I think is important to point out here is that these routines and rituals, you know, one of the, the reason that athletes do rituals, for example, if you watch a, a baseball player in the, in the on deck circle, getting ready to go, uh, getting ready to bat or, or in the batter's box about to take a swing. A lot of them have these like rituals on like, well, I'm going to pull my glove down and then, you know, take two practice swings and then come back and I'll be ready to go. The reason people complete rituals is pretty simple. It gives them a semblance of control in a situation where they often lack it. So, so if you think of your warm-up routine as your quote-unquote ritual, it gives you a sense of control when you're, you know, on the brink of of lacking that sense of control because uncertainty over what's going to happen, what the race will play out, or what have you. Um, is, is very high. So if you can kind of ingrain that warm up, have it down, know what they're going to do so that they are just focused in the moment, it, it kind of sends a signal to our brain that says, oh yeah, we're in control of something. Like we're in control of how, how we get to this point. So we're going to be okay. So stop stressing and worrying about it. Right. And that's important that we make warm up routine, but not rigid um, in terms of different warmups for different environments. So if you're in really hot and humid weather and you're not used to that, that's a 
different warm-up that's similar, but not set in stone to if you're living in cool, overcast, cloudy environment most of the year, right? Or let's say the warm-up, you have a long holding period in a championship race where you have to report to the clerk circle and be here sitting down or in a, a major marathon or something, and you have to be here static. Um, you know, all those things are important to consider when preparing an athlete for the competitive crucible where they do lack a certain amount of control, but they have, they can control the controllables, right? So a lot of times you'll see people with these long elaborate warm-out cards and this laundry list of things to do. And you got to go and check, 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 check the box right before you even get to the starting line in a um, race situation. The important thing, as Steve said, is we want to minimize decision-making. So by having to go through and check all these things off the laundry list, that creates a sense of decision-making. Like, did I get it done? Did I get it done? Did I get it done? The warm-up should be an ingrained phenomena that by the time you get to a race event, especially a pinnacle racing event, it's kind of automatic, as we said, in nature. You just know what it is without a visual checklist because you've ingrained in practice and you've, um, in workouts, in races, in the training year, the athlete has self-select the sequence and order of operations of activities that works best for them. And same deal here with the coach, right? You see these, especially a lot of novice athletes and well-meaning younger coaches, and I was a victim, I did this too, elaborate drill set, elaborate drill sequence of dynamic warm-ups um, before, you know, a race and like, you got to do it because, you know, all the science and all, it's really important. And the most critical thing with a dynamic warm-up is again, just making sure it, the athlete feels good. <laughs> like it's really that simple, right? It's kind of like, what's the best, um, uh, measurement tool for an athlete's state and well-being, right? You can have all these biological markers, all these fancy fitness HRV trackers, but as we know with Carl Foster's work and everyone else's work, just ask them how they feel that day. What's your rate of perceived exertion during or before the activity, during the activity, and on reflection of the activity? That's the best marker because that person's um, anchor and their context is going to be you know, true and homeostatic for them. But if you know someone and that'll usually like high energy, ready to go, and they come into something flat, or this or that, as a coach, then that's where you take an advisory role. And then based on our context and history and knowledge of the athlete, could then massage different directions to go with a warm-up to help kind of elevate them in that moment. And this is where, again, we're blending the science and art as one, versus I'd love it to just be all scientific, cut and dry. You just do this as a robot, this or that. But by understanding all these really important things that go into the warm-up, before a very difficult and challenging activity is designed to take place, we as coaches can then do and fulfill our role excellence for the athlete a lot better by being able to give them that direction and provide that anchor of security and stability uh, and confidence maybe in, during a situation or a time when they're going to lack that. And that's why it's important for, I think, if you can, you know, obviously the Army has different constraints. Other um, scenarios have different constraints. As a coach, you're available for the warm-up, but you're not necessarily overseeing the warm-up after the teaching of the warm-up has taken place in the initial periods of the, the training year or training season because you want the athletes to be a little bit more autonomous, in my opinion, come up to you, ask for guidance, and know you're there and available. You're watching, you're present, you're not on your phone, you're not like rolling around doing different things, eating a cheeseburger at the track. You're like, here's where you can find me if you need me. I will be here. And I always tell athletes, I will be here ready for you if you need me. Otherwise, you're Thomas, you're on your own, you got this. Um, but if you have questions, I will be at this place, this location available for you as you're warming up. And that, again, it goes into the whole psychosocial um, uh, concoction that is athlete readiness before a difficult endeavor. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you brought those things up because I think it is important. You know, you can as as a coach, you can overcoach the warm up, you can overprescribe it, you can do all sorts of stuff, and also your demeanor in the warm up can influence the athlete's psychological well being and demeanor, right? 
if you're obsessing over things you don't need to obsess over, it can create worry for the athlete, right? If you seem on edge, the athlete will take on that that same mental state. So you have to be very deliberate and very, you know, uh, intentional on what kind of vibe you're giving off in the warm up as 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 well. And that's going to differ based on you know the level of competition, where things are at whether you need to bring intensity or levity, all of those different things. All right. Is there anything else on the warm-up you want to cover, John, before we jump towards cooldowns? Oh, let's uh, let's leave everyone with a little bit of a treat. What's your favorite warm-up drill, Steve? Just one that's kind of always there and always present no matter what. My favorite warm-up drill oh man (laughs) um as i said my athletes love either jumping rope or simulating some sort of jumping rope you know some sort of plyos if i was looking at dynamic stretching the one thing that always seems to make it around and stick around regardless is leg swings i have no idea why um but the athletes because i i should Step back. The way I coach at, I coach my warm up with, uh, with the college kids I was working with, is I teach them a bunch of different things, and then literally tell them try everything, and then we just start trying things until what fits. And the example I always give is Brian Barraza in college, like hated almost every drill he tried except for leg swings so his warm-up would be literally go for a two-mile run do all sorts of leg swings and then some really good strides and excels and and that's it there were no other drills besides that um for the steeple he'd we'd run through some hurdle drills but for other races that was it and as I said, leg swings and just about everyone seems to stick around for some reason. Yeah, you're not wrong. And I love that approach too. like expose your athletes to a, a cornucopia of drills and then say, all right, from this buffet, pick your favorites. Again, it gives autonomy, um, but it also accomplishes the end game of getting the body and mind physically ready and giving that athlete a semblance of control. That's a great, great way to do it. Um, I would say jump rope is in my go-to catalog as well, along with, you're right, a lot of people just gravitate and like the feeling of leg swings. Um, I also try to make sure arm swings are in there as well. And arm swings that in, uh, emphasize extension. So for most people, you would say that's kind of backwards, right? Or like as if you were doing a swimming stroke, um, you know, you want to make sure that that humerus is going into extension as it would in running, but just big open arm swings. And you see a lot of Ethiopians and Kenyans do this. Cause again, we, I feel like we limit the imp or we underemphasize the import that the arms and the thoracic column have in the running coordination and mechanic. And a lot of times you get a lot of restrictions in there, especially on the anterior side by those traps and those pecs getting tight and that rounding, that kyphosis of the shoulders. So, you know, the arm swings accomplish the same task as the leg swings, just getting that joint range of motion open. It feels good. You're not going to tear anything. And, you know, you're just kind of priming the spring, so to speak. So those would be mine that I always seem to um, retain in the catalog and athletes enjoy retaining in their catalog of warm-up drills, no matter what. Love it. All right. Let's jump Pull in. Pull down the, the opposite side. Yes. All right. So I'm going to outline what I think is more most important for cooldowns very quickly, and it's very simple. Um, there are two goals of cooldowns, and they differ and vary. Uh, But I think number one is they are to return your body and mind to kind of a baseline normal state. So you're shifting your body away from this breakdown and consume mode to a hopefully repair, rebuild, recover mode. If you wanted to look at it 
uh, in terms of hormones. You're trying to decrease and get rid of, or, you know, yeah, decrease the amount of stress hormones, which were great for getting you amped, great for, you know, preparing your body to do crazy things, to prepare to go to battle, etc. You're trying to move those away and bring in our nice kind of recovery, uh, you know, um, hormones like getting testosterone back up. So if you were to break it down really simple, if we looked at cortisol, stress hormone, testosterone, you know, um, anabolic hormone recovery type hormone you want to shift that that parameter back back away so get that cortisol down so that you can recover and get into this build up mode and that includes body and mind there and then the other thing that is i mentioned at the top that i think is important for cooldowns is you also depending on the workout depending on the race you have a training adaptation right and why, and I'm not even talking about going to do workouts after races like you see some people in groups do. I'm talking about just your normal cooldown activities. Why would we have this? Well, it's pretty simple. You know, we just raced or worked out really hard and depleted the body in some manner, you know, sometimes almost fully, sometimes to eight out of 10 or a nine out of 10, but you depleted the body. So even if you're going for, let's say, a three-mile easy run, you are doing that in a state where your lactate levels are probably still elevated, your uh, glycogen levels could be depleted, especially in certain muscle fibers. You know, you've got fatigue lingering and your fast-twitch fibers, and they're not working as well, et cetera, et cetera. And you're doing something. <laughs> so because of that, like you're going to get some sort of training or adaptation shift uh, again, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, that's a really good lens to view it through, Steve. And I'm kind of agreeing. I call it something different. I, I view the cooldown as a flush, right? You're just flushing all these uh, fatigue metabolites, you know, kind of out the door, um, so to speak. And, you know, one re way that I found is really effective that athletes really like is we call it aerobic flush, right? So you're leveraging the capacity of the oxidative uh, metabolism, the aerobic oxidation effect that happens by doing a kind of essentially a little cool down fart lick. And on the track, this looks like 200s at a marathon pace, pretty darn slow, right? So like six minute pace, maybe for we're, you know, like that's what Daniel Herrera does. He's a world-class miler and he's running six minute pace for 200s. And he finds it really hard at first. And then it's 200 meters, just walk, jog, easy. That can take, you know, 90 minutes, 90 seconds to two minutes. And it's about what I found is a mile to like six laps of this. What happens is in the beginning, especially after a really tough session where it's a long session or uh, highly acidic session, they just feel like absolute bunk and trying to run 45 seconds for 200 is a pretty tall order. However, when you start to cross over at about minute four or five, six, a lot of those metabolites start to get flushed out the body through that aerobic respiration. And we get this, you know, kind of like bounce back effect where all of a sudden they just start to feel a lot better. They start to have more energy. They're kind of not as fatigued. And they're shocked and amazed, right? And again, I view this as part of the cooldown. So it it's it's kind of the first activity you do before you actually like go in reverse, right? So think about this is how I think about it. Like as we're coming out of a workout or you know a preparatory race, if we went from a crescendo from low to high, so to speak, now we're going from high to low. So the flush is kind of a in between, right? The flush is a, um, you know, uh, bridge to kind of that kind of rest and digest state. Then, yeah, it's kind of really easy jogging, running, walk jogging, depending on the athlete's ability. You don't need to, you know, the, the one, I'll say this about the science on things. Sometimes it does make sense to have an extended cool down, right? And by extended, I mean 30 minutes to like 50 minutes, depending on who you're working with, of easy running post-workout. This makes sense. Why? 
Well, glycogen has been depleted depending on the severity of the workout. Once you get through the flush, you flushed out a lot of these abrasive metabolites. Then three, especially with the more endurance-based athletes, you're recruiting these muscle fibers, right? Uh, and it's kind of a hack, if Steve will allow me to use that word, to recruit those kind of unused muscle fibers and those um, you know type twos that can shift one way or the other to be able to be activated and turned on. That's going to be a value later stages of your 10K or marathon, what have you. So in early preparation of training, extended cooldown makes sense. It's not just to get more mileage in. It's actually this ingenious workaround to get more of a training effect in a really lower intense state. Sometimes it's also the hardest part of the workout <laughs> because you're tired, you're fatigued, and coach said, hey, go run another 30 minutes easy after doing all this stuff. It makes sense early on when you're trying to get that stimulus. But if you're not in that state where you're trying to get a training effect in that cooldown, then it's just another, again, 10 to 15 minutes easy jogging after this flush. And then you kind of go into flexibility or mobility drills. So um, hurdle mobility could be one. Uh, rope stretching could be another. Static stretching, this is a good time now to um, do static stretching. A lot of blood throwing around. The muscles are flushed with blood. You can tear those muscle fibers because now you have a time horizon of recovery ahead of you for that repair to happen. It's the most optimal time to actually start and do static stretching is at the very, very end of uh, the day. So that's kind of how I view, you know, the, the, the purpose of cooldowns uh, and the value of cooldowns. And then too, you also have your, what I call quick turnaround cooldowns, right? So let's say you're an 800 meter runner, 1500 meter runner, or even 5K, 10K runner, and you're running through rounds in a championship, right? So that cooldown's a lot different than, say, your training cooldown. One key thing of that turnaround cooldown is an ice bath. Steve and I often are like, oh, don't ice bath during training. And you don't, because you want to elicit really high-grade adaptations. You want that inflammatory response to um, take effect and for the body to signal and create that repair and get all those enzymes and everything in a championship or a competitive circumstance where you're trying to feel good, feel fresh, and bounce back as quick as possible from round to round, we don't want any of that. So yes, you want to ice bath in that scenario. Uh, keep that cool, cool down real short. You know, not like just enough to, maybe there's no flush that happens at all. Just a little easy jogging and then boop, you know, a little bit of mobility and then right in the ice bath. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh <laughs> John, because, you know, it really does depend on what you're trying to do. You know, mm -hmm. we rail on ice baths a lot because, again, in training, you want the adaptations. But there are moments where you, you want to throw away everything at it, you know. Um, the best thing you can look at for cool down for recovery is what do decathletes do after, you know, day one to day two? And they'll jump in ice baths. They'll go in pools and splash around and walk around. Why? Because they're trying to get that uh, that, that recovery so that they can bounce back. So it all depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And that's why often, you know, John, I'll suggest or push for longer cooldowns early in the competitive season, right? In the beginning of track or cross country, uh, season after races or after workouts, because I'm like, you know what? We're racing. We're going to get in, you know, a, a 30 to 45 minute cool down instead of the 15 to 20 minute run so that we can, you know, get keep some of this aerobic development and get a little bit of this bang for our buck while we're tired, um, especially after races or early on later in the season. You know, that kind of goes away because that's not I'm not trying to get that training effect. The one other thing that I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, push for is that or mention is that the social aspect of cooldowns is so important too. Oh, yeah. Good you know, point. why? Well, it's pretty simple. Social, you know, interaction is one of the best ways to sh shift you out of this kind of high arousal, high stress, sympathetic response into this recovery, repair, parasympathetic response just by talking, you know, being around people. And the other part of, the other part of uh, that social aspect, too, is it allows you to give this, have this time to kind of decompress 
and even review informally what happened in the race with your teammates without feeling like judged. You know, it's not like you're having a formal review process with, you know, your coach in a, you know, in a film review session. You're just kind of shooting the shit and allowing yourself to process what just happened, whether it went good or bad after both a workout and or a race. And oftentimes what you see is after the cool down athletes come back and if they were angry at a workout or or race, you can see their whole demeanor change because they processed what occurred. And the great thing, John, is this can occur during jogs, but it can also, if you do it strategically and do it right, you can craft a time and the space for this when athletes are doing maybe some of that static stretching that you talked about, or some of those dynamic drills that you, that we talked about, or even some of that hurdle mobility is like, you know, they don't have to be soldiers on it like crazy, but if that, that activity can give them the time and space to kind of have conversations with either yourself as a coach or competitors, uh, or teammates around, uh, them who are going through the same thing. Yeah, and that's I'm glad you brought up that point because that debrief we talk about debriefing, you know, a lot, and coaches talk about it a lot, and it's this formal, like business-like, you know, yes, dissection that happens. But actually, the most valuable debriefing is among peers and colleagues, right? I love seeing after races, um, you know, competitors in the same event group compete or that can just compete against each other, cool down together, because that's very healthy and high value of adjustment, right? Or like you said, post difficult session or workout, the whole team, all ranges, JV to varsity, all cool down together. And that's the value of making sure that cool down running component, or even if you have a mobility component or other activity component is done collectively versus creating the segregation of like the fast runners cool down at this pace, the slower runners cool down at this pace because it's optimal. No, it's not the point. I mean, there's a lot of benefit to that interaction. And the other thing, you know, that I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch on real quick is in early stages workout, what had, which has become in vogue in recent years is the post raced workout, right? So we saw this a lot here about a decade ago, you know, some coaches were like, Oh, well, we're going to maximize the training stimulus after these early races. Cause that's not hard enough of a stimulus quote unquote. So we're going to do these post-race workouts. And I think there's value to that, but I don't think the speed work after like a difficult three K or five K or double has as much value as say more lactate dynamic work or uh, threshold, uh, lactate threshold running work, tempo work, right? Because again, your nervous system has already gone through a lot to compete. Uh, you, you know, the the spring, the, the glycogen, all that stuff has been depleted. So if you're going to do quote unquote speed, it's actually not that high grade of speed. And you're not getting that much teaching out of it versus if you're going to do say that a lactate component of some sort, something steady state, or even kind of like roll on type scenario where it's 400 at 10k pace 200 meter steady at half marathon pace and do that for like 10 minutes or what have you or fartlek style um, activity i think that has an enormous value but i remember you know at first it was in vogue to kind of like show off and do these hard real fast hard strides and such and it just didn't really have the impact beyond the optics of intimidation or looking badass from a training standpoint, I quickly shifted gears myself to athletes that I work with to more, if we're going to do a post-race type workout early in the season, it's going to be lactate in nature. And again, this follows the order of operation, right? High, high demand, kind of ratcheting it down a little lower demand, a little lower demand, a little lower demand. It still has value and benefit. It still follows the principles of cooling down. Uh, it still makes sense, but it just isn't um, kind of out of sequence or out of um, order of operations. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think if you're going to do some workout and after a race, I think it needs to, um, mostly again, be in the, the order of that kind of threshold or uh, aerobic development side. And you can even do this in igloo style intervals, right. As well. Um, instead of, if you don't want to just go do a threshold run or some fart, like, but, I think that point you brought up is is 
important and that racing is an incredibly high neural demand. So you don't want to stack things on top of that because that can quickly put you in a hole that is uh, impossible to come out of, uh, especially if you don't have any extra help. So like, <laughs> you know, be careful. Yes, the Russians that. call it, uh, yes, uh, restoratives yes no restoratives. <laughs> because if you don't have if you don't have restoratives <laughs> it, it's the, the neural demand of racing all out 1500 for example or all out 5k or 800 is incredibly high because you're taxing everything to the highest degree so you want to have a low neural demand activity if you're going to do some sort of rate or workout afterwards like a threshold or like a fart lick where you're getting some sort of training adaptation um in the kind of opposite direction of the race, but you're allowing, again, that neural stimulus to kind of come down. You don't want to go out and crank out some 400 repeats or what have you. Um, or And we even see this about, you know, in modern times, the strategic tripling and doubling that might happen um, at the Olympics, at a world championships, or even at a state meet, right? You're, this is why there's... On behind the scenes, there's a lot of dialogue about how a schedule of a championship meet is going to be laid out, you know, how much space between the 10K and the 5K. And when you see athletes kind of go out of the realm and doing, you know, I don't know, 15, 5K, 10K triples, you have to question the hubris of the athlete in that, um, you know, coaching cohort. Because yes, while metabolically, physiologically, they might have the capacity to be able to do that neurally the ability to reset from those high arousal high stakes competitions is going to be very difficult and you even see this in the sprints the ability of the athlete to neurally be able to handle the 100 the 200 relay triple or you know even jumpers right it's why we kind of got away from that Carl Lewis model of long jump and also sprints not because sprinters and long jumpers can't flex back and forth. It's just now the demand to compete at a high level in those events is very, very difficult and a derives a high degree of neural stimulus to be able to afford the ability to perform. And so bouncing back, super, super tough nowadays. Um, and it was even back then, but again, more so than ever with how fast and how far everyone is um, running and competing in this day and age. So always as a coach, remember, don't just think about the physiological, which tends to be a lot of our default. We also think about the neurological and also the sociological, the social um, engagement that's happening too, when we're talking about warmups and cool downs. Yep. Couldn't have said it better. Um, I think that is a wonderful place to kind of leave it for understanding warmups and cooldowns. Hopefully you understand it is multifactorial. What are you trying to pay attention? What are you trying to do physiologically? What are you trying to do neuromuscularly? Kind of that reactivity. What are you trying to do psychologically? Ask yourself those questions on both warmups and cooldowns. Be deliberate, but also um, as we talked about, give your, give yourself and the athletes the flexibility to kind of choose, experiment, and see what works for them because it is an individualized game. You know, what gets one person ready isn't going to get the other person, you know, in the same state. And that's what you're trying to get after is what do you have to do to prepare athletes to get in the, the state to compete or work out? And then how do you get them in the state to recover or, as John said, flush things out so that they're in a better place um, to perform or bounce back afterwards. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I mean, remember athletes are people and you're getting people ready to perform or do difficult tasks. And so that, that relationship with the person is key. And that's where, you know, in-person coaches and in-person coaching really trumps kind of digital or virtual coaching because anyone can subscribe um, or prescribe a certain recipe of activities to do. But when you're in person, there's a lot more going on. And the thing with things that are multifactorial is I always just remind people, keep it simple. The, the whole point is we as coaches should be aware and know 
a lot of different roads to Rome and a lot of different ways and means that we could implement to make things happen. But for that person in front of you, for that person you're working with, what is the simplest way to get the biggest bang for your buck, right? The easiest way. Steve and I are notorious for putting way too much on our plates. And what happens is we, you know, it leads to burnout. It leads to, you know, kind of subpar performance or work from our standard on end. Why? Because it's just too compact. There's just too much going on. More and more, I've tried to harness my inner Warren Buffett and just keep my schedule as open as possible and only do and only engage in things that have the highest degree of impact because it makes the impact that those things have a lot more valuable than saying, oh, well, we got all 27 dynamic warm-up drills in that to stimulate all this different endocrine, hormonal, physiological, fascial, you know, et cetera, um, engagement before we actually do this. And then we did this elaborate activation that really got, you know, great order of sequence. And then we had this elaborate flush exercise. It's like, pick your battles, keep it simple. You know, even with an activation or a flush, it doesn't need to be the intensity or duration I prescribed. It can be even a little bit less, right? It can not happen at all. You're not, um, you know, you're not handcuffing your athlete, so to speak, if you don't engage in those activities. However, if you um, don't follow the principles and you just roll out of the, the bed or you roll out of um, the locker room and you just go hard step one, yeah, you're not going to get as much out of that run as if you followed kind of the progression of warm up that the body prefers. You'll still get something out of it, but not as much. And that's, I think, the thing to remember is when in doubt, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel like there's so much going on to do as a coach, keep it simple. By keeping it simple, by hanging your hat on a couple key things that you feel like are going to have a big impact, the athlete will thank you, you'll thank yourself, and you'll be able to measure and also improve those things a lot better than being too diffused with too much going on um, and then feeling constantly like you are treading water or your head's kind of bobbing up and down under the water. Love it. Great summary. So we hope that you guys found this interesting, entertaining, and helpful. Uh, thanks a lot. If you haven't, checked out the Scholar Program. And thank you for being a listener to On Coaching. We appreciate it. And until next time, everybody.